Does the agricultural biotechnology company Monsanto live up to its own self-profile as improving the lives of farmers by making them more productive with fewer resources? Or is their true relationship with farmers more based on bullying and intimidation? And how did Monsanto and the other biotech companies come into existence in the first place? Do they have an agenda beyond making agriculture more efficient and sustainable? On today's show, Percy Schmeiser, the legendary Saskatchewan farmer who stood up to Monsanto for years in court, will join us to talk about his long battle with the company and the experiences his fellow farmers have had with this firm. We will also hear a rebroadcast of our May interview with author and geopolitical analyst William Engdahl about the hidden background outlying the real motivations behind the GMO movement. On today's show, Monsanto, Partners in Sustainability or Global Racketeers. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 11, 2013. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. You can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The swift move to level Sandy Hook arguably has precedence established in momentous terror-related incidents. On May 24, 1995, just 35 days after the 1995 bombing of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, the U.S. government moved to have the structure demolished before a proper investigation could be conducted on the structure's remains. A similar set of circumstances played out in the aftermath of the September 11, 2001 attacks as New York municipal authorities arranged for the remaining steel from the World Trade Center towers to be shipped to China and India. 9-11 victims' families and independent experts say such materials would have aided in understanding what actually took place on that fateful day. That's from the Sandy Hook School Massacre. School building is now slated for demolition. Why? by James Tracy, posted October 9th. On October 2nd, Israel's Channel 2 TV News said senior Israeli security officials met with a high-level Gulf state counterpart. It's believed to be Saudi Prince Bandar bin Sultan. He came to discuss interests both countries share. They include toppling Assad and confronting Iran. Pursuing this agenda risks embroiling the entire region in conflict. That's from the Israeli-Saudi Arabia, an unholy alliance by Stephen Lendman, posted October 10th. Yesterday, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee said, We have martial law, and my colleagues know what it means. The last time we heard Congress members use the phrase martial law was when Congressman Brad Sherman and Paul Kanjorski and Senator James Inhofe all said 
that Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson warned of martial law if the TARP bank's bailouts weren't approved. That's from Congress Member Says We Have Martial Law by Washington's blog posted October 9th. The crucial aspect of this operation is the message sent to the people of the world. The message is about the change of core principles of the global economy. Any chance change in the global financial system is useless without a proper change of the underlying ideology. For the BRICS to prevail, the professionals working on spreading the right message have to perform brilliantly. The world must see that the whole struggle is not about hijacking the current economic system, but it is about creating an equitable economic system. That's from the BRICSO versus the U.S. dollar. What will happen to the global economy if BRICS announce launch of new currency by Peter Koenig, posted October 9th. Economist Dr. Paul Craig Roberts contends the situation is unsustainable. It will blow up at some point, and Dr. Roberts predicts, quote, it will be worse than the Great Depression because in the Great Depression, prices fell along with employment. Now prices will be rising and employment would be falling. Gold and silver prices will explode in dollar terms, unquote. That's Paul Craig Roberts. Worse than the Great Depression, gold and silver prices will explode. The situation is unsustainable from an interview with a USA watchdog posted October 10th. At the 12th anniversary of 9-11, RT's popular program, The Truth Seeker, ran a 13-minute episode, 9-11 and Operation Gladio, presenting new historical evidence that began to go viral. This RT episode, seen on YouTube by a quarter of a million people in the, its first three days, suddenly flatlined September 11th when viewing virtually stopped. A careful analysis follows showing that the RT title and URL were decoupled from the YouTube and Google indexes and could not be transmitted by email during the weeks that followed. Did RT change the YouTube privacy setting because of political pressure? Or was there covert search engine interference? As from the article, Do Google and YouTube Search Engines Block Inconvenient Truth? A Case Study by Global Research News, posted October 9th, originally published in PR Newswire, U.S. Newswire. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The company Monsanto is a seed company, an agricultural biotechnology company that claims to be committed to sustainable agriculture and producing more food while conserving soil and water and improving the lives of farmers. Yet, the company has triggered a worldwide movement in opposition to them. Saturday, October 12th, is a day of action in which people in over 500 locations around the world will publicly condemn the company and its practices. To better understand the concerns underlying these protests, we talked to someone who has become one of the world's best-known Monsanto antagonists. Percy Schmeiser farms near Bruno, Saskatchewan. 
Uh, Percy Schmeiser uh, famously was the figure at the center of a very long legal battle with the di biotechnology company Monsanto. At stake were the rights of farmers and the future of seeds. So to tell us of uh, his uh, David and Goliath battle is uh, the man himself, Percy Schmeiser. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Percy. Well, it's a real pleasure to be uh, with you this afternoon, and also it's a real pleasure because we have a beautiful, warm Saskatchewan day, which farmers are really looking forward to because we still have a lot of harvesting to be done in our area. So a few extra days would mean a lot. Okay. Now, uh, you uh, actually ended up winning uh, an award, uh, the, the Right Livelihood Award, uh, for fighting to defend uh, uh, the rights of farmers. Uh, I, I want just... You know, for, but just to give us a sort of a, a good overview, could you maybe just uh, show, share with us briefly yet again the uh, you know the, the circumstances by which you came into uh, conflict with Monsanto? Well, okay, uh, in nineteen ninety-seven. Quite quickly, is that in uh, GMOs came out uh, were introduced in both uh, countries, U.S. and Canada, in nineteen ninety-six. Four crops introduced at that time, which was corn, cotton, uh, soya, and especially here in Canada, canola. And um, so uh, that was in 1996. And in 1998, uh, uh, my wife and I, we were known as seed developers in canola. We were contaminated uh, in 1998, and that was when Monsanto laid what they call a patent infringement lawsuit against us because we were, lose, were, we were using our own seed from year to year in development, and because of the contamination, they said we violated their patent. So basically, that was the case, a patent infringement case, and so we stood up to Monsanto on this, and it went through uh, um, a federal court, uh, which patent law come under, then federal court of appeal, which we were successful in them hearing it, and then after that, it went all the way to Supreme Court of Canada, and... Uh, so there were a lot of issues that, arisen, uh, that had arisen by that time because it took about four to five years or six years to get to the Supreme Court of Canada. And basically, it hinged on the rights of farmers versus how much control the corporations or any one that has a patent on higher life forms, how far can you go with it. So it became a very important case and was a, the first case in the world in regards to the patents of higher life forms. So that's basically... Uh, what the case was all about, and in the end, uh, what happened was that uh, uh, we won. We didn't have to pay Monsanto any money. We won our case against Monsanto, but we had challenged Monsanto in the Supreme Court that uh, right uh, that uh, right to life or higher life form should not be patented. And on that, Monsanto um, uh, Supreme Court sided with. Uh, Monsanto on it, it, but it was a split decision 5-4. But there were other other um, cases uh, that Monsanto had laid against us in that in those years uh, before it went all the way to Supreme Court. And, and I think I should mention some of them, and this can happen to uh, many, many other farmers, and it has happened to many other farmers in both U.S. and Canada. First of all, during the course of the trial, especially after the Court of Appeal, Monsanto laid a million-dollar lawsuit against us because we stood up to them and they wanted all their legal expense paid up to a certain point in time. And so we had to fight that lawsuit, a million dollars. 
and it was very interesting that some of the expenses they had claimed. The other um, uh, lawsuit that laid against us is that they issued liens in Sadiet, uh, uh against uh, us, my wife and myself. They tried to seize our home. They tried to seize all our farmland. They tried to seize all our farm equipment. So we had to fight that. So those were all before the Supreme Court of Canada. And uh, so at the Supreme Court, as I said, we were success successful that we won our case against Monsanto. And But what was not fair, and we still maintain that to this day, Monsanto had to pay their legal bill, and we had to pay our legal bill. And Monsanto, remember, Monsanto laid the lawsuits against us. And being that they lost, they should have had to pay all our legal bill also, but that didn't happen. But So anyway, that gives you a brief explanation of the different lawsuits that we went through. Mm. Now, I, I know that uh, there was also uh, a situation where uh, Monsanto had forced, you, you're talking about uh, Monsanto forcing you to sign a release saying that you could never take them to court again? That's right. That was one of the, that was another, actually after the Supreme Court cases, we thought we were done with Monsanto, and uh, uh, several years afterwards, we, we thought, well, uh, my wife had asked me never to grow, and she was the main developer, ever to grow canola again, but she still liked to carry on the research, and so we decided to do this with yellow mustard, and here, after we were getting one of our fields, a 50-acre research field ready, it, uh, we found it was contaminated with canola, and uh, doing testing, we were quite sure that it was uh, Monsanto's Roundup Ready canola, and uh, we had sprayed some canola, uh, some uh, uh, of their herbicide Roundup on 12 plants. They were safe marked, and uh, they didn't die. And we had notified Monsanto uh, that uh, we felt that we had some of their contamination again, and we'd like them to come out and check it. And indeed, within two days, they were here with two people, and they checked that 50-acre field. There were plants uh, intermittently through the fields, individual plants and, and clumps of plants. And uh, so uh, we got a sample from each plant. They got a sample. Two days later, they notified us, yes, indeed, those canola plants that were in our field were Montana's ground of ready canola plants. And uh, so, and they asked us what we wanted, especially my wife, what we wanted to have done with it. And she said to them, because it was a research field, she wanted every plant pulled out by hand, so none of the seeds from those plants, it was almost in, in the seed stage, and um, they agreed to do that. Mm. And uh, uh, several days before they were to come, we get a fax from Monsanto, and they said that before they removed the plants, uh, we would have to sign a release statement, first of all, that we could never, ever take Monsanto to court again for the rest of our lives, and that we could not talk to anyone. In, in fact, our freedom of speech would be taken away. So we notified Monsanto back then. We said we'd never give up our freedom of speech. They contaminated, you contaminated our fields, and so we would not sign that document to give our rights to freedom of speech and not to be able to ever take them. In fact, they said that our, uh, anyone of our family, uh, my, like my wife, myself, our children, would never, ever able to take Monsanto to court again for the rest of our lives, and we disagreed with that. Monsanto fired back and said, if we don't sign the release agreement, like other farmers, they get other farmers to do, uh, they won't remove the plant. So we notified Monsanto and said, your contamination, 
we, we went them off the land, and we are going to do with them what we want. We will remove them. And Montana fired back, and he, that's when it really got nasty. And he said, those plants on your field are not your property. You're not allowed to do with them what you want and uh, and uh, unless you sign the agreement. And so what happened was that we did not sign the agreement. And with the help of our neighbors, we removed the plants. And we notified Monsanto that we uh, the day they the, the days it would be done because it took about three days with the help of our neighbors, and uh, we notified Monsanto it had been done, and then we notified Monsanto whether he went uh, done uh, with those plants, and they said that unless you sign those uh, that do those documents or that document, you can't do with it what you want, and they said, and that, that in other words, they had said they're their property. And then we said to them, we pay the taxes, we own the land, we're going to do with it whatever we want on our own land. So in the end, we had burnt what we had uh, taken off our land. And then uh, we sent Monsanto the bill. Monsanto refused the bill unless we send, uh, uh, signed the release forms and the gag How orders. How was the bill for? Pardon? The, what was the bill? Oh, the bill was very small. We paid our neighbors $640 and nothing for our own labor and my one of my hired men's labor. So it was basically really nothing. My my neighbors were really good on this. And so we sent Monsanto the bill. They refused to pay it. And this went on for about, unless we signed a document, this went on for about a year. And uh, finally, we took Monsanto to small claims court. The judge agreed to hear it. And so we had <laughs> Monsanto, a billion-dollar corporation, in court on a $640 bill. In the end, Monsanto paid for the contamination cleanup. To us, it was not the issue of the $640. The whole issue of farmers' rights and where a corporation come in, contaminate your land, then want to take your rights of freedom of speech away, your rights to never be able to take them to court again for the rest of your life. We thought that's just going a little bit too far. And we thought it was a major victory because there's a precedent has been set, an avenue has been opened that if farmers are contaminated, there is a way to protect yourself. But... On the other hand, having said that, it costs you probably could cost thousands of dollars because Monsanto will fight you every inch of the way to try and stop you, and that's what they have done to many, many farmers. That that they uh, through taking or standing up to a farmer in court, it costs a farmer a lot, not only money but his time. So, but anyway, an avenue has been set. If you can contaminate uh, and you own the patent, you should pay for the damage, and it becomes also a liability issue. It seems as if if you have, or if Monsanto apparently has the right to to patent life, uh, to to patent a seed, uh, what what does that say to the rights of farmers who wish to be uh, acknowledged as organic farmers and and not have like because these seeds they they, they could just blow into your field, right? So like what right. what, what rights do you have to uh, maintain a, a, your acknowledged being acknowledged as free from GMOs and, and, and to, to farm organically. Well, this is something that's really, really not right in our in, in our country of Canada, that if you are an organic farmer, conventional farmer, and you are contaminated under patent law, you no longer own your seeds or plants, and you no longer can use your seeds or plants from year to year like we were doing. So basically, your freedom of choice and your freedom of to grow and develop the seeds you want, and your loss of diversity, this all is lost. 
and uh, to the, the because you have a patent on 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 a life form that's an, it, 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 under the patent laws as we stand now, you have control of that life form. So how far do you go? The question is now being asked. Seeds, plants, birds, bees, animals, fish, and what about even human human beings? And these are things that my case has all brought forward and has to be addressed sooner or later. Uh, in regards now, in gave you what has happened in Europe. Uh, if you are contaminated, uh, you have a right to go after the company. You don't lose your right to your seeds or plants. So they're way ahead of us into protection of farmers' rights compared to us here in Canada. We basically, a farmer has lost his rights. Could you talk about, because uh, you've been, you, 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 I know you have a number of speaking engagements uh, over the next uh, little while, and uh, you've spoken around the world. Uh, have you ever uh, been in touch, has Monsanto uh, approached you? Uh, while you've been uh, at these various locations? Uh, what, what kind of encounters have you had with Monsanto? Some, some of the uh, uh, encounters were on a business type, uh, level, but most of them were not. They were threats, like many farmers that have received threats. We were threatened uh, by one of Monsanto's reps at, at one of the uh, meetings, uh, where, and this was at a, at a, in the legislature, uh, of, uh, of a country, in fact, it was South Africa, and the, one of Monsanto's reps said to my wife and myself, he shook his fist in my wife's face, my face, and said, no one stands up to Monsanto. We're going to get both of you somehow, someday, and we're going to destroy you. And that's what makes uh, we, uh, we refer to now as that whole new culture of fear. Farmers are just scared because the power that these corporations have now over through patent laws. And so it has not been easy for us. Uh, they would watch, uh, especially, my, it was not easy for my wife. They would come into our driveway, watch what she would be doing all day long, or they would sit on the road alongside of our farms and uh, watch what my men were doing and what I was doing. So it, it was pretty scary at times. So, but that, uh, you, so you can imagine that um, uh, how farmers feel when they heard it, how, when they go to my neighbors and say, you support Percy and Louise Schmeiser, we're going to come after you and you won't have a farm left. We didn't think this ever could happen to a first world country like Canada, but it's happening uh, to hundreds and hundreds of people. The letters, the phone calls that we have received and how many farmers have just given up, caved into Monsanto and given up their freedom of speech because um, uh, if uh, they agree, if a farmer agrees not to talk about it, They'll get off with a lesser fine. Maybe instead of paying $200 an acre of farm, they might get off for $100 an acre farm or whatever. So it's cost farmers thousands and thousands of dollars, and they're not allowed to talk about it. Do you do you understand the allure for some farmers? I mean, why, why is it that uh, that, that uh, among your uh, neighbors that they are? Uh, Getting into this uh, contract with uh, Monsanto is it uh, is it is it the fear factor or, or is there any particular uh, um, carrot, if you will, that that, that attracting attracting well, people? I, I, I would say to answer that is that at the beginning, uh, farmers didn't know. They believed what they they were told by the companies, especially Monsanto, increased yields, less chemicals, more nutritious. We'd now be able to feed a hungry and starving wheel, uh, 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 world. 
uh, it's more nutritious. And that was one of the reasons. But once you grew it, you were trapped. You're trapped because Monsanto knows that if you ever grow a certain variety of canola, you're going to have seeds, and a lot of them seeds can lie dormant for 20 years. And it's, if you decide to go to a different variety, like a, a, you want it to become organic or you want it to be back to conventional seeds, uh, they know that there will be contamination in there, and it doesn't matter what the level of contamination is. And that's one thing what, they, uh, what was done in my, in, in my case. Level of contamination doesn't matter. If it's even half of 1% contamination, you violate their patent. So if it's 1% or 2%, it's over. So once you got it, you're basically trapped. And Monsanto knew that, that all they had to do is get a farmer talked into it, and then be very difficult from him to go to any other variety. Uh, I, I should mention that uh, I think that Monsanto first was saying in Europe, when I was talking a lot in Europe, uh, especially Germany, uh, and um, Monsanto's uh, reps there at one meeting said, I had um, uh, about 98% of my contamination was Monsanto's uh, GMOs. But what, uh, and uh, 98%, well, even if you bought seed from Monsanto, you'd very li unlikely to have a high percentage like that, 98%. But what what they were very misleading is that the my contamination, and I had uh, this done by two scientists from the University of, uh, uh, of Manitoba at Winnipeg, uh, checked my contamination, and it varied all the way from on uh, two quarters of land, 0% to 1%, 8%, and in the ditch uh, next to my neighbor, in the ditch it was around 60-some percent. But what Montana, when they say uh, it was 98%, so whose who's, uh, GMOs were in our field? What company was it? 98% of that 2% or 5% was Monsanto's GMOs. So the biggest contamination uh, came from Monsanto, and that's where they try and mislead and tell people that I, I had such a high rate of contamination, but it was a variety of contamination, which was Monsanto was 98%. So Monsanto could easily be held totally liable for the damages or liability. Do you see um, this um, any kind of a light on the, on the horizon or a light at the end of this uh, dark tunnel for, for farmers? Is it possible well, to, for Monsanto to be at least contained, if not... Uh, um, well, uh, well, I think what is happening is that at the beginning, a lot of consumers thought it was only a problem for farmers. But now consumers and, uh, uh, are really becoming concerned of what is in uh, what is in our food now. And so a lot of them want to know. They want labeling. They want to know. And that's what has happened in Europe is that they have labeling and so they refuse, refuse to buy um, GMOs. To give an example, Monsanto about a month ago pulled out of Europe now because people will not buy genetic altered foods because they know the dangers of the new virus, the new bacteria, the new antibiotic resistant marker genes, especially in canola, and they don't want to have this new virus, this new bacteria in their food. And that's what we have here. And so people don't know what's in their food. And I think that's the biggest light at the end of the tunnel is that people are becoming more aware in both our countries, U.S. and Canada, of the danger of eating genetic altered food, and people should have that right. To me, uh, your freedoms of choice are being taken away uh, by not being no, that you don't know what's in your food. Everyone should have that right, and to me, I think it's absolutely criminal that we don't have that right in Canada. 
our basic assets, our basic freedoms of choice is being taken away. And that people should have that choice or that freedom to know what's in their food. And I think that is the biggest light at the end of the, uh, at the, at the, end of the tunnel is that people are becoming, the consumers are now becoming aware that they want to know what's in their food, what they're feeding their children and grandchildren. One of the main reasons that um, uh, that I, I have kept on is to bring this awareness to people. There's a lot of information out on the Internet. There's a lot of information from Europe uh, where a lot of studies have been done on the effects of eating GMO food. Even Russia has a lot of information on the effects of, on mice and rats. And so people are really becoming concerned. And this is why I think the Canadian Food Inspection Agency should play a bigger role in, in doing, a lot, uh, doing some of this testing instead of taking just the, the testing that's been done by corporations in, uh, and given to them and they only use that. They should do the testing themselves and not rely on a corporation uh, to supply them that, that testing. So that's why to me, I, my wife and I will continue to bring this awareness and I said then people can make their choice but they should be able to have that choice to make. Well, thank you very much, uh, Percy Schmeiser, for uh, filling us in on these uh, very important uh, details. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I hope that people take more of an interest and because we still can do something yet now because we've often said once you introduce it, we don't know, and I've asked many scientists around the world about this. They don't know once you introduce it if you ever can bring it back out of the environment, and that's why it's so important that the choices we make will not only affect us today, but for many generations to come. So again, thank you very much for having me. Percy Schmeiser farms near uh, Bruno, Saskatchewan, uh, the figure at the center of a long legal battle with the company Monsanto. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. We welcome our new partner, CHLY 101.7 Radio Malaspina Society, broadcasting out of Nanaimo, BC, on the West Coast. The Global Research News Hour broadcasts on CHLY every Thursday, starting at 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Joining us now to uh, discuss the question of genetic modification and uh, provide us a little bit of background on that technology and on uh, the company Monsanto is geopolitical analyst, author, and uh, economist William Engdahl. He is the uh, author of Seeds of Destruction, The Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation. So thank you for joining us, uh, William Engdahl. Thank you. Now, uh, as I read your book, I find that uh, it it seems as if uh, the whole issue of genetic engineering, uh, it it seems like it's uh, not unlike uh, uh, water fluoridation and the uh, chemical... Uh, the use of chemical pesticides and, and herbicides, this idea of a solution looking for a problem uh, that's developed during wartime. Could you maybe help uh, our listeners understand a little bit about how genetic engineering uh, came to be uh, as a, an element of our agricultural uh, reality? Well, the GMO project was started by the Rockefeller Foundation, the same people who 
uh, created the world cartel in, in oil multinationals, the first real multinationals, I suppose, if, if you want to look at it that way. And after World War II, Nelson Rockefeller, one of the brothers, went with Norman Borlaug, who was working for the Rockefeller University at the time as a researcher, to Mexico and, and South America, where the Rockefeller family had huge oil and other interests. And he had the idea to introduce wheat hybrids, uh, so-called miracle wheat, uh, into agriculture in Mexico and, and other developing countries with an eye to industrialization of the agriculture there, similar to what was going on in the American agriculture north of the Rio Grande. And they, the Rockefeller Foundation financed a project called uh, Agribusiness at Harvard Business School in the 1950s. Now, what does this have to do with uh, patenting seeds and, and genetically modifying plants? Well, I think it has everything to do, if you look at it as an historical process, because uh, the idea of creating a top-down vertical integration, a monopoly concentration in food production in the same way that the Rockefeller Standard Oil Group had done with oil production, uh, was their dream. That was essentially the, the raison d'etre behind the, the agribusiness project at Harvard Business School, and uh, precisely to create vertical integration where the actual physical farmer and the farm family, the family farm, would be the least relevant or important link in this whole chain, and the concentration would, would concentrate profits in for-profit-only uh, stock companies like, like uh, uh, ConAgra or Tyson Foods or, uh, or such, such concentrates. And uh, one of these is Monsanto, one of the core companies of the, of the Rockefeller family holdings. So the idea of genetically manipulating, inserting a foreign uh, bacteria or fungus into the genome or the, or the DNA of, of, a, of a plant or of an animal or of a human for that matter is what they're trying now. Uh, this comes out of something called eugenics. And for people who don't know what eugenics is, it's the Nazi race science, the, the attempts by the Nazi doctors during, uh, during the 1930s and into World War II to literally breed a master race through manipulating genes and uh, uh, eliminate the undesirable races, the so-called inferiors. And the eugenics projects of the Hitler Third Reich uh, at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin and Munich and elsewhere, Dr. Mengele, the doctor of death as he's known in history, uh, Joseph Mengele and others, this was financed by the Rockefeller Foundation, and they were quite open about it at the time. I mean, they don't, didn't try to hide it. They do now, but uh, it's too late because the archives have been researched thoroughly. Uh, after World War II, they had a conference. One of the prime sponsors of the American Eugenics Society was uh, the Rockefeller family, the Rockefeller brothers, and, and the Rockefeller Foundation, the financial sponsors. They held a conference. Uh, someone close to the Rockefeller family was, was the president of the American Eugenics Society. And he said after World War II and the uh, discovery of the, of the Nuremberg and the Auschwitz gas ovens and so forth, the new name of eugenics will be genetics. And I think that says it all. So the idea of being able to tinker with life, to be able to play around with, with the DNA structure and modify it in some way, is a mad dream of a group of scientists sponsored by Rockefellers uh, and has been for decades, uh, since probably before the end of World War II. 
and it's it's doomed to fail because you cannot manipulate life in that manner. It's based on scientific reductivism, and reductivism is is simply false science tr trying to force everything into the smallest uh, imaginable uh, glob of matter, uh, a single gene, and claim that defines its characteristics. Well, genes like human beings are defined by their social environment, by their uh, by the universe that they live in, uh, not only by their own individual expression, and that's the fundamental flaw of GMO. Yeah, obviously, I don't think too many people are very aware of that uh, rather, uh, oh, I don't know, insidious uh, background to, to this yeah. uh, technology. In fact, the, the technology itself, uh, it's not very well promoted, even though the people who uh, who uh, develop it and, and try to, to, to promoted it's it's not something that's promoted on the product itself certainly not to, like they're, they're trying to discourage labeling of genetically modification you know so you, indeed yeah so yeah i mean so i, I guess the, the the question is then that uh, who principally benefits from genetic modification i mean e even in terms of who they're trying to uh, uh direct this technology to i mean it's well, I'm going to I'm going to uh, give a little bit of a shocking own uh, conclusion on this. Uh, people who are interested in a detailed explanation of, uh, of it should uh, should get the book and read it. Uh, uh, not simply because I wrote the book, but, but it's uh, the only place I know of where it's uh, the case is laid out in such detailed form. But the uh, the labeling was was put in place under George Father Bush in 1992 in a private meeting in the White House with the heads of Monsanto, the largest uh, owner of patented seeds and the largest uh, commercial seed owner in the world today. They've been buying up independent heritage seed companies wherever they can so that they can get this monopoly. And the goal, in my view, is to... Well, it goes back to a quote from Henry Kissinger uh, attributed to him during the 1970s when we had a, an oil crisis and a food crisis. And Kissinger at that time said... If you control the food, you control the people. And I think that's precisely what certain powerful elite circles are, are uh, trying to do with uh, patenting of seeds, of GMO seeds. Uh, if you control the patents on rice seeds that are grown in China or Asia, and uh, soybean seeds and corn seeds that are uh, one of the main crops in U.S. agriculture, and uh, certainly... Uh, the main source of, of uh, animal feed in the world today in the commercial agriculture. If you control the patents on those, you have the potential to control entire governments, like what Kissinger imposed on, on Chile during the Allende regime. He imposed that food as a weapon. He cut off USAID food supplies that led to growing popular uh, demonstrations against Allende that gave the cover for the military coup that Kissinger uh, Wanted in Chile. Mr. So, uh, Mr. Engdahl, I, I just want sorry to interrupt. But I just remember, uh, like when, at the outset, you were talking about the Rockefellers and and oil, and uh, I seem to recall that uh, the, the Marshall Plan. I mean, one of the effects of that, uh, whether it was intended or not, is it shifted the uh, base of industrial production away from coal to oil. Correct? In Europe. Well, yeah. Europe. Europe uh, after after the. Uh, uh, World War II, Europe was was a predominantly coal-driven economy, and uh, what happened is that the uh, the Marshall Plan was used uh, 
to, uh, in large part, transform agriculture, mechanized agriculture with tractors and so forth, uh, using Rockefeller Standard Oil. They got the uh, the lion's share of, of the oil markets across Europe after the war, and, and uh, transform Europe's uh, economy from from coal to uh, to petroleum, which was the Rockefeller game. And as I think I, you were saying that it seems as if this transformation, like what uh, they did for oil, now they're wanting to do for for food production. So it's yeah. pretty much the same thing. Yeah, yeah, just get. If they control the seeds, they can deny the seeds. If the seeds are licensed. You sign an agreement with Monsanto. Let's take them as, a, as a, an example because they're the biggest. And in that agreement, you have to agree only to use Monsanto seeds that you buy each planting season from Monsanto anew. And you have to use a Monsanto patented Roundup uh, weed killer. Now, Roundup, uh, Monsanto refuses to release the list of ingredients in Roundup other than to say it's based on glyphosate, which is a highly toxic uh, uh, herbicide to begin with. But what they've done is add various adjuvants to the glyphosate that make it one of the most toxic brews cocktails uh, out there. And there have been tests by uh, scientists at Cannes University in France uh, under uh, Gilles-Eric Seralini and uh, his team that have tested the effects of uh, Monsanto Roundup in doses less than what you have in in your your garden. Roundup is the most widely sold weed sold weed killer in, in the world today, and in doses less than are uh, common in the garden, uh, it kills uh, cells in a human embryo. So that's pretty scary stuff, and that is is tied in with the purchase of Monsanto seeds. And now what Monsanto is doing is a, is a terror campaign, I think you have to call it, uh, across the United States that farmers who have a, a field next to a Monsanto GMO field and the wind carries some of the seeds from the GMO field over into the non-GMO field, Monsanto will send private detectives around, uh, kind of bounty hunters, uh, to make, make uh, uh, crop tests of the neighboring farm. And if they find uh, evidence of GMO, then they'll sue that farmer for stealing Monsanto seeds when the wind is, is what brought it over. And they knowingly do this uh, in order to terrorize uh, farmers in, into accepting GMO seeds. Now, the, uh, the, the technology, the, there has been scientific research that's been conducted that attests to the, uh, uh, the, the, the hazards of, of this technology, uh, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yet that does not, has not done much to uh, discourage this enterprise. Are, are we talking about a, a similar uh, phenomenon to the way uh, the tobacco industry has been able to uh, suppress research pointing to uh, its harmful impacts on, on human health? Well, it's, 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 it's similar, but I, let, let's take it uh, for, for directly for what has happened. Monsanto has refused, for any independent test, they've refused to make their GMO seeds available to laboratories uh, anywhere in the world. And that's even been the subject of a, of a critical editorial in, in the uh, uh, American uh, science magazine, but the uh, Scientific American. Uh, but the, finally, the, in September 2012, in food and chemical toxicology, uh, and keep in mind the name of the journal, Toxicology, 
and a very respected scientific trade journal, they released uh, a study by scientists at, uh, in France led by uh, uh, Professor Seralini, and the study was immediately posted on the Internet to outflank Monsanto and their agri-lobby, and they did the world's first ever two-year-long feeding study, long-term study, with 200 rats on a diet with control groups and non-control, uh, a diet of GMO corn. And what they found, and this was all peer-reviewed, and it was scientifically completely rigorous, and what they found was absolutely alarming. It should have killed the licensing of GMO for once and for all, pending uh, repetition of the Seralini study by other independent scientists. Uh, rats develop tumors uh, not after 90 days, which is uh, the longest studies that Monsanto ever did on any of its GMO crops, but uh, in some cases after four months or, or uh, eight or nine months, but they developed uh, horrendous rates uh, of tumors, uh, cancer tumors. They developed organ damage. Uh, they, they developed uh, 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 unbelievable, uh, well, the, the uh, death rate on, on the uh, uh, rats that were fed to fed GMO were something like two to five times higher than non-GMO rats. So all of the indications pointed a flashing red light. Let's make a full stop here on further uh, uh, licensing of, of GMO from the Food and Agriculture F FDA in the United States or the USDA uh, and uh, really examine this, have a moratorium on it, and examine in great detail what, uh, uh, what the long-term effects are in, over a two-year period. Well, instead of that being done, the European Commission in Brussels, which is a body whose uh, middle name is corruption, uh, I would venture to say today, uh, the European Commission in Brussels, which is the kind of the administrative, non-elected heart of the European Union, uh, they dutifully gave it to the European Food Safety Administration, so-called experts, and six of the members of the EFSA panel that were supposed to review Seralini's uh, study uh, are members of front groups financed by Monsanto and the agribusiness GMO lobby. And what they did was issued after a few days, a few weeks, they issued a statement dismissing entirely the Seralini study, saying it's not biologically meaningful and therefore does not require further testing. Well, talk about a non-brainer. If, if, if this one study they claimed has... has scientific flaws and they fail to uh, enumerate the flaws in their in their report well then out of uh, out of pure concern for for human health and safety they uh, should have immediately said uh, the European Union should finance uh, several independent studies using the same parameters uh, to confirm or disconfirm uh, rather than that they said let's close the close the case on this everything's okay so uh, this this is an indication of the kind of corruption that Monsanto spent, and Monsanto and related uh, GMO organizations spent, uh, I've seen reports of over $100 million on the stopping the California labeling referendum some months back in the U.S. So uh, this resembles more uh, uh, an organization of, of uh, some kind of mafia than it does a, a, uh, uh, an honorable, uh, serious company trying to 
uh, improve the uh, the food supply for the world's population, which is their PR pitch, by so, the way. So uh, why did uh, the uh, certain countries, uh, especially Argentina, came to become uh, uh, major uh, hubs for this new technology. Could you describe how uh, Argentina, just for starters, uh, came to be a, a major uh, developer of this uh, sure. of soybeans, for example? Well, in, in the early 90s, Argentina was in the midst of a, a grave debt crisis, the late 80s, early 90s. Carlos Menem was president. Carlos Menem, a, a personal uh, family friend of David Rockefeller and, and the uh, Bush family both, uh, often guests at their homes, respectively. The uh, Menem government gave Monsanto the exclusive, without any kind of congressional hearings or, or a debate or anything, uh, made an agreement with Monsanto as the exclusive uh, uh, purveyor of GMO soybean seeds. At that time, Argentina was one of three large soybean growing areas in the world, the other being Brazil and the United States, North America, United States. And uh, so with that, within, within a matter of a few years, soybeans took over Argentine agriculture. And soybeans grown by very large landowners, this, this medieval Spanish latifundista model, uh, where you drive peasants off their land, you come in and uh, use police to terrorize peasant families that have worked the land uh, for generations and bring in agribusiness and uh, mechanized tractors with uh, satellite guidance and, and remote control and so forth. So you need no labor power. And then you spray, you crop spray with, with uh, Monsanto Roundup and, and you create these huge poisonous uh, concentrations of, uh, of uh, Monsanto soybeans across Argentina. And that's what's been done. It destroyed one of the most beautiful uh, family agriculture systems in the world, which was the case of Argentina back in the 70s, in the early 80s. Mm. Now, uh, you, you do uh, conclude the book by talking about, uh, and of course you alluded to it earlier, that this issue, the agenda of population control, could you help uh, sort of seal that case? I mean, sure. it had its beginnings well, in eugenics, and now that we're, yeah. we're seeing that move. Well, uh, many of the biggest investors in Monsanto, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which just bought uh, millions of shares of Monsanto, uh, are also some of the biggest advocates of population reduction. Uh, Bill Gates' father was a, a, a president of, of a eugenics organization, Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger's old organization, which is very close to the Rockefellers historically. Uh, that being neither here nor there, but the... Uh, uh, Gates Foundation is a major sponsor as well of bringing GMO into Africa under an organization headed up by uh, Kofi Annan, the former uh, United Nations Secretary General, uh, project for a green revolution in Africa. And the green revolution they're talking about is nothing other than bringing patented seeds into, into traditional African agriculture and putting Africa, one of the most fertile lands on the planet that hasn't yet been destroyed from its... Uh, uh, soil nutrients and so forth by industrialized agriculture techniques, taking Africa and putting it under the thumb of U.S. agribusiness. And that would create an enormous power concentration. So the uh, that's one a aspect of it. The other is uh, the role of the U.S. government in U.S. Department of Agriculture, which is an agency of the U.S. government more or less run by agribusiness. No secretary of agriculture is 
is uh, approved in the Congress unless agribusiness behind the behind the scenes gives them uh, the green light or the thumbs up. And U.S. Department of Agriculture funded a project for creation uh, with a company, a biotech company in uh, San Diego, California, uh, about a decade back, for creation of corn that was, and I pause and say this very slowly, spermicidal. And the president of that company, Epicete, actually gave a euphoric press conference uh, before he was hushed up because it was a little bit too explosive politically. Uh, he gave a press conference and said, I have developed a solution to the world's overpopulation, namely spermicidal corn, genetically modified corn that kills human sperm when humans eat it. So that uh, these are some of the indications. And I think it doesn't take a great stretch of the imagination to project let's say 10 to 20 years into the future when gradually the resistance, the political resistance in the European Union, already they've more or less bought the European commissioners to, to go for GMO, despite huge grassroots resistance across Europe. Uh, but Monsanto is determined to, to break the barrier in Europe and flood Europe with Monsanto patented seeds. Imagine that uh, 10 years or 20 years down the road, China, Russia, India, and so are dominated by Monsanto-licensed GMO seeds or Syngenta or uh, DuPont Dow Chemicals, doesn't matter, but uh, it's all more or less functions as one cartel. The, uh, the power that controls those seeds, the power that controls Monsanto, would then have the ability for the first time in history to cut off essential seeds for, for, the, uh, for their harvest, leaving aside all... Uh, health dangers and so forth of, of GMO seeds and, and the chemicals that are paired with them, uh, they would have such a power that no uh, no uh, elite on, on Earth in human history has ever assembled that, that kind of control over, over the f uh, food supply. Mm. So I think that uh, it begins to suggest that we ought to be asking some of these kinds of questions in our public debate about GMO. Well, uh, William Engdahl, I, I want to really thank you for that uh, analysis. It's uh, definitely something that people should uh, confront, uh, given the importance of our food supply and uh, you know, maintaining uh, you know, some form of food sovereignty and control over what it is uh, we put in our valleys and the way we do agriculture. So thank you yep. very much for sharing those views with us. Thank you. And uh, will William Engdahl is the author of Seeds of Destruction, The Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation, and uh, the book is available for sale through the uh, globalresearch.ca website.
That was We Will Rock Monsanto by Oshawa-based musician Rob Fuller. Anyone wishing to participate in the worldwide October 12th actions against Monsanto should visit march-against-monsanto.com on the World Wide Web for information about events in your neighborhood. And that's our show for this week. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.